Hi, I'm Carla Jones, the Senior Director of Federalism, Homeland Security, and International Relations at ALEC. And I am honored to have with me here today, Ambassador Marek Magarovsky. So am I. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. And before you were Poland's ambassador to the United States, you were Poland's ambassador I've to Israel. I've had many hats, actually. Oh, okay. In my professional past, I was the Polish ambassador to Israel. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, I was also uh, deputy foreign minister responsible for, among many other things, also both Americas and our relations with uh, China. Mm -hmm. And uh, before that, I was the spokesperson of the Polish president. Oh, my gosh. That's wonderful. Well, thank you. I don't know whether it's wonderful, but uh, it's been a long career. It's a wonderful career, a long <laughs> and wonderful career. And I heard from a mutual friend of ours that you're fluent in Hebrew. Yes, so I am. We have a lot of topics for future <laughs> podcasts. But today we're going to be talking about what I think is one of the most consequential tests that the West has faced since the end of the Cold War, basically Russia's attack on Ukraine and how to mount an effective, robust response yeah. to that attack. Um, and re with respect to that war, a lot of Americans have absolutely no idea how much our global partners are doing to help Ukraine in the war effort. I saw this firsthand when I took a delegation of ALEC members to Germany, and they were shocked by how many Ukrainian refugees Germany had accepted. They had never heard of Seitenwender. So just so our listeners understand how much our allies are helping so that we don't feel like we're alone in this fight. Can you tell us about the refugees from Ukraine that Poland has welcomed and describe the impact that's had in your country? But firstly, to your point about uh, uh, that uh, we are now experiencing and we are facing together, I think it definitely is a test for uh, the unity of the Western alliance or to use a, a broader definition for the cohesion of the free world. And I'm using this term deliberately, recalling vocabulary we were using during the Cold War. It was a clash of the free world and Soviet Union, a communist uh, regime based on oppression, based on lack of freedom of speech, and many other things that we shared at the time, not as a country because Poland was on the other side of the Iron Curtain, as you perfectly remember. We formed part of the Soviet bloc. But as a nation, we always aspired and we always had the ambition to become part of the West. And that's why I do believe that there are some uh, values which still unite us. And uh, talking about the Western alliance and talking about uh, the free world, I think that we, this is a, a kind of a déjà vu situation for many of us. A new Cold War, we are against, uh, again confronted with uh, pure evil. And again, this is a term I have, I have been using abundantly in my, in my talks here as Polish ambassador to the United States with my American partners, with all my American interlocutors. The humanitarian crisis that you have just mentioned is, of course, uh, one of the most crucial challenges we are facing today. We have taken in millions of Ukrainian refugees, uh, especially at the beginning of this uh, conflict. Uh, many of them have integrated perfectly into the Polish society and they decided to stay in our country. And we would have to combine actually two figures. Before the war, we had roughly 1.5 million Ukrainian refugees, Ukrainian economic migrants, actually. 
who had arrived in Poland before the beginning of the hostilities and they worked and lived in our country with their families. And then another 1.5 million refugees who fled war-torn Ukraine just after February the 24th. Many more have crossed the border uh, ever since, but uh, not all of them, of course, have remained in our country. On the other hand, they enjoy benefits, social welfare. But on the other hand, many of those Ukrainian refugees just say, upon arrival to Poland, that they don't want Polish authorities to take care of them and of their families. They want a job, and they get a job, mm -hmm. because the unemployment rate, luckily, in our country is ridiculously low, so we can even physically absorb subsequent waves of Ukrainian migrants. This has uh, quite obviously had an impact on Poland's economy, but our economy, in spite of the pandemic and in spite of the, of the aftermath of war in Ukraine, remains robust, very dynamic. I mentioned the unemployment rate, the economic growth is uh, equally impressive. Uh, so I think that both Polish citizens and also those uh, Ukrainian migrants or refugees can enjoy a very positive and a very business-friendly environment mm -hmm. in our country. So it is not a burden for our economy. On the contrary, the Ukrainian migrants and refugees have enriched our, our society and our economy. And I do believe that, for example, I expected some political backlash, especially at the beginning of the this uh, conflict, as in many other European countries which have had to cope with, uh, with migration crises right. over the last couple of years. Unlike in Poland, which again has managed to absorb those migrants and refugees into our labor market, for instance. So I do believe that in the longer term, this will somehow shape our, not only our economy, but also our society. In a more in a more broad picture. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's had, in a way, a net positive impact on the nation. A very positive one, indeed. Awesome. And in addition to the humanitarian support, Poland has also provided quite a bit of military aid. What has been the nature of the well, military? Quite a bit is an understatement. I yes. We I have delivered. Agree. We have delivered, for instance, more than almost three hundred battle tanks to mm -hmm. Ukraine some aircraft, a lot of ammunition, howitzers, anti-aircraft systems. It has been quite a, a sizable contribution mm -hmm. to Ukraine's military effort in this unequal confrontation with the Russian army. On the other hand, you know, we all realize now how miserably the Russian troops have performed in Ukraine, which was came as a surprise actually to many experts and ordinary citizens, not only in Europe and in central in, in the central part of our continent, but also elsewhere. The Russian army has been considered the second largest in the world. Mm -hmm. And as Secretary Blinken rightly noted a few days ago, it turns out that it's the second best army in uh, Ukraine. But leaving all those jokes aside, I think that it is important also not only for Poland, but also for all our allies in Europe and beyond to keep up that military assistance, because this is what Ukraine needs to ultimately defeat the Russian army within its borders. I think that uh, victory is possible, and I'm glad that many European politicians and many American politicians have already altered a little bit the vocabulary they are using, talking about this war and speaking not only about uh, the possibility of Ukraine not losing this war, but effectively winning this confrontation with Russia, 
I think that uh, we've all had our misgivings about, for example, the possibility of recapturing or liberating Crimea. Now, I think it is within the reach of the Ukrainian armed forces to liberate uh, the peninsula and uh, other regions in Ukraine which uh, were annexed and occupied in 2014 after the annexation of, of Crimea because Actually, we should, when we talk about the start of this war, the beginning of the hostilities, we should not be talking about February 24th. The war actually started nine years ago. And it's also important to remember that, and it's also important to be absolutely confident that Ukraine, with the assistance of the collective West, can deal a devastating, definitive blow to the Russian army. Yeah, I, I think a Ukrainian victory is necessary, and it is true that we in the West forget that Ukraine has been at war consistently since 2014. And in my opinion, Crimea and the Donbass should be non-negotiable. They are part of Ukraine. And you mentioned some of the positive effects of Ukrainian refugees. Has Poland suffered any negative effects, like increased energy prices, depletion of military equipment, anything like that? Well, the energy prices have indeed increased over the last couple of months, but there, there are, you know, an array of different factors which have contributed to some hardships in Poland's economy. Inflation remains pretty high, but of course, we, we can blame a vast part of responsibility to, uh, on President Putin and his neo-imperial ambitions and his obsession with Ukraine, mm -hmm. that has also had an impact on not only on Poland's, but also on the global economy in many aspects. As I said, I expected political backlash on the Polish domestic political scene, which has not materialized, fortunately. Of course, there are some fringe parties and fringe uh, political camp, which uh, has uh, vehemently opposed increased immigration and those ways of refugees who have arrived in Poland since the beginning of the war. But again, they, they do not have uh, actually essential influence on uh, Polish political life. They are on the margins of the Polish parliament and the Polish political public discourse. You, you also mentioned the, the, our Poland's military capabilities. It's true that we have depleted our military capabilities quite significantly because we have always been determined to aid Ukraine as much as possible, also in military terms. I mentioned those 300, almost 300 tanks and uh, a lot of uh, other military equipment we have supplied Ukraine with since the beginning of the war. That means that, of course, we, we have to be very careful trying to strike the right balance between arming Ukraine and remaining a robust country in terms of our military preparedness for, you know, long-term threats which are still looming on the horizon. Uh, and that's why, for example, we, we have been in talks with our American partners, with our South Korean partners, buying, purchasing equipment, purchasing state-of-the-art weaponry, mostly from these two countries, from the United States and, and South Korea. By the way, our defense minister is, is now paying a visit to Seoul and talking with his uh, uh, South Korean counterparts about further commitments on our part. Uh, so it's, it's important for us to, to, uh, not only to strengthen the Ukrainian military, but also not to deplete our own military capabilities uh, excessively. And this is one of the, of the most important tasks and most important uh, challenges the, the current Polish government is facing. And it seems 
as you alluded to, that Putin's attack on Ukraine managed to unite the West and give NATO a renewed purpose. What is your assessment of Western cohesion a year and a half after this segment of the war has begun? And do you believe that Western resolve will remain strong, or are you concerned about war fatigue? I'm always concerned about war fatigue, also because I'm a former journalist, so I know the mechanics and I know how the media works, both in the United States and in Europe. So I'm, paradoxically, I'm even surprised that the interest in everything Ukrainian and in what is going on on the, on the battlefield now in Ukraine is still so vivid. In the American press and in the European media, uh, Poland is a, is a case apart, of course. I do believe that this, uh, that the Western resolve will be upheld in the longer term. I do believe that that cohesion and the unity is firm. Uh, although at the very beginning of the war, we saw some countries more reluctant than others, for example, to become more engaged in this confrontation against Russia and to impose more severe sanctions on the Russian individuals and on the Russian economy. Uh, now, it seems to me that there is a, we are witnessing a certain realignment of political uh, positions. Just until recently, I've had the impression that there, there are some countries in Europe which understand Russia, contemporary Russia, and Putin's Russia much better than others. And I mean, uh, of course, Poland, the Baltics, other Central European countries, but also the Scandinavians and the Anglo-Saxon universe, uh, including, uh, of course, the UK, the United States, uh, and Canada, all three NATO members, but also countries like New Zealand or Australia and some more remote allies like Japan and South Korea. All these countries seem to understand the threat much better than others. There was some reluctance on the part of some other European countries in terms of further relations with Russia, because the economic ties between those countries and Russia had always been very, very strong and much more substantial than in our case, for example. But I do believe that now, after so many months, of, uh, of the Russian aggression against Ukraine, even countries like Germany or France, which have always tried to maintain you know, a decent relationship with Russia, even after the, the invasion against Ukraine, and now they are in the process of changing their minds. And if you hear what President Macron and Chancellor Scholz have been saying recently, those were harsh words, actually, against Putin, against Putin's uh, aggression, against Putin's uh, geopolitical agenda. And I think it's, it's really uplifting and reassuring, also in the longer term, that we are all maybe not unanimous in terms of condemning Russia's aggression and in terms of how we see, uh, for example, the European Union's future relationship with, with the Kremlin. Nevertheless, I think that we are going in the right direction now, collectively. Wonderful. And as you well know, but our, some of our listeners may not know, NATO accession is written into the Ukrainian constitution. And during a visit there in 2019, I saw a lot of enthusiasm in Kyiv for joining the alliance. Also, Ukraine was offered European Union candidate status last year. What are your thoughts on Ukrainian accession to NATO and to the EU? And what do you think the timeline for both might be? The current Polish government does endorse Ukraine's uh, aspirations and uh, its membership bid or bids in both organizations. 
NATO will be much more complicated, of course, because in spite of the fact that most Central European countries do support that bait, some others do not, or not as enthusiastically as we do. But uh, I think that uh, Putin's worst nightmare is Ukraine becoming a member of the European Union and not NATO, because Putin has always dreamed of a world in which his uh, Russia's sphere of influence is full of countries which are corrupt, poor, and economically reliant on Russia. Now the picture is changing, slowly, uh, steadily, but I think irreversibly. Why, why, why am I saying that this is the worst scenario, worst case scenario for Putin? Because that would demonstrate that you can be an independent country, a post-Soviet republic. Poland was lucky not to be uh, a Soviet republic in the past, but Ukraine uh, has been a, a, a Soviet republic. Now that can prove that those countries can become prosperous, and wealthy, and they can crack down on corruption effectively, and they can decouple themselves, both politically and economically, from the Russian Federation. And we, can, I can, I, I think we can see now this phenomenon in some other post-Soviet republics in Central Asia. China is trying to fill that void, and China can sense now that Russia is becoming weaker and weaker geopolitically. And they are now trying to find niches and find new partners in, in Central Asia. And I think the same principle applies to Ukraine. Ukraine has applied for EU membership. It has applied for NATO membership. And uh, if it becomes uh, an EU member state in the foreseeable future, uh, you, you've asked me about a timeline. It's, it's, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. It's very difficult to predict uh, what will happen in the next five or ten years, but because also much depends on other European capitals like Paris or, or Berlin, uh, also, and, uh, and many other political leaders in Europe who might have their misgivings about uh, admitting Ukraine into the European Union. But I think that th this is also changing, and many more people now, many more political heavyweights in Europe do realize that it, it is an irreversible process and that Ukraine will one day become a full-fledged member of the European Union. And ALEC has had model policies since 2011 supporting greater integration of Moldova into Western institutions. That model policy, by the way, was introduced by a then member of the European Parliament from Poland. What are your thoughts on deepening political, economic, and strategic relations with countries like Moldova and like Georgia? Again, uh, Moldova and Georgia are both uh, candidates for membership in the European Union. Moldova has been granted the status. Mm -hmm. Georgia hasn't yet. But I do believe that uh, also because of our very, very strong and very friendly and very robust relationship with Georgia, regardless of, you know, Georgia's internal political turbulences, I do believe that Georgia will also one day become a member of this of the collective West, not only of the European Union, maybe of NATO one day and some other organizations which uh, are, you know, landmark entities in terms of pertaining or not to the West. The European Union and NATO are both open organizations. We do pursue, and at least this is also the position of the Polish government, to pursue the open door policy. So Georgia and Moldova are both most welcome to become members of these uh, two organizations. Of course, they have to meet the, some criteria which are indispensable in this particular 
case, but I do believe that uh, the more we enhance our cooperation, uh, even before the, the admission of such countries like Georgia and Moldova into the European Union, because this is a process, so many of those, even Poland, had to meet all those criteria before we ultimately became uh, a EU, EU member state. Again, same principle applies to countries like Georgia and Moldova, and we do keep our fingers crossed for those countries to join the European Union as, uh, as quickly as possible, because that would signify a substantial enrichment, both politically, economically, and also culturally, in the, in, in the European Union, in spite of the fact that these two countries may seem at first sight a little bit remote, uh, also geographically. Uh, Moldova is, uh, is in a very uh, particular and a very awkward position also geopolitically, constantly endangered by Russian aggression. We, we have been hearing threats aimed at Moldova from the Kremlin for months now. Georgia is even more remote again, geographically, but I think that politically and culturally, Georgia is uh, is purely an European country. Oh, yeah. Um, I actually was in Tbilisi a couple of weeks ago, EU signage <laughs> everywhere in honor of their national The more aggressive day. Russia uh, acts, the more European all those countries and nations will become shortly. It's true. People just would say to me, just in conversation that they were sick of Russian domination. I mean, people I barely knew. Um, last Soviet Republic question, Belarus. What do you think the fallout of a Putin defeat might be for Lukashenko and for Belarus? Well, again, no crystal ball here, no crystal clear predictions. We are following the situation in Belarus very closely because it's our immediate neighbor and a country which has uh, basically become a part of the Russian Federation. It is formally and technically independent and autonomous, but actually all major decisions uh, when it comes to Belarus's uh, politics and Belarus's uh, military status are taken in the Kremlin and not in Minsk. Uh, Lukashenko has become almost entirely dependent on uh, Moscow, some decisions uh, have been taken recently which are, are, are really upsetting and disturbing from our perspective. Uh, the deployment of nuclear weapons in, in Belarus, some amendments in the Belarusian constitution, and generally that, uh, that particular bond between the Belarusian military and the Russian army. Uh, so uh, both Belarus, I think Belarus has now a similar status as the Kaliningrad and Clay, an unsinkable aircraft carrier. For Russia, so again, we are for, we are uh, monitoring the situation in Belarus very closely. We had a wave of protests a few years ago in Belarus, and we were also pretty confident that, that those protests and that uh, social turmoil would eventually lead to some major changes also uh, domestically in Belarus. And again, those prospects and those. Uh, expectations did not materialize. But I think that the Belarusian society, the civic society, uh, is pretty robust in spite of all those reprisals and in spite of the very, uh, of the aggressive and inhumane nature of the Belarusian dictatorship. I do believe that the, the Belarusians are strong enough to finally overthrow this uh, regime. Uh, and of course, they will have their own 
and they do have their own right to elect their own representatives. And I think that this right will be respected in the future. And Belarus will also become part of the European family. I've heard that about Belarusian civil society as well from other people and completely agree with you on that. One of the things that we're going to need to do when the war is over is rebuild Ukraine, but not just their infrastructure, but civic society, rule of law. What is the best way that the West can help with that? The best way uh, to help Ukraine rebuild its own country and its own economy is to help Ukraine win this war. And uh, we have to be laser-focused on military assistance nowadays. This is our most important obligation, our vital commitment to keep up also the pressure on the Kremlin. And uh, I believe that one of the most important things is to, to remember that we have to hold the Russian political leaders accountable for all those war crimes they have committed or they have ordered to commit on Ukrainian soil. So far, the dam in Novokovka was blown up yesterday. I think it's another instance of Russian brutality, which again has to be someone has to be held accountable uh, for that. If you depict that perspective in the longer term, I think it's also a very important element of the whole narrative we are trying to build around the war uh, in uh, in Ukraine. So we have to help Ukraine as intensely as possible to defeat and to ultimately crush the Russian army in eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine, to recapture all the territory which has been annexed and occupied by Russia since uh, 2014. And then we have we can start thinking about reconstruction. So the reconstruction of Ukraine begins with a military victory. I don't believe, and this is a, a phrase I, I have used here, pretty frequently, I don't believe in a diplomatic solution in Ukraine. I don't believe that both sides will one day sit at a negotiating table and uh, to try to find a diplomatic solution. I think the solution should be military, and this solution should, uh, um, I I think that uh, the only solution is Ukraine's victory uh, against the Russian army. I agree with you completely on that. And is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know? We haven't talked actually about the, the mood in the United States. To what extent the, the, the America uh, is ready and is willing to, uh, to keep, keep up the pressure and to, to continue aiding Ukraine, both politically and militarily. I, I would like to express my gratitude to the United States for its leadership. It's important to have a leader in our camp. And uh, America has proven very resilient also in terms of its domestic politics. And in spite of some doubts some American politicians might have about the military and the financial assistance to Ukraine, I think that uh, many of them have already realized how important it is not only for Ukraine, but also for countries like Poland and for America itself to help Ukraine win this war. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with our listeners about this incredibly important topic, and we look forward to welcoming you My to pleasure. our annual conference in Orlando. Looking forward to it. We're looking forward to thank it. Thank you so Post- much. Thank you.